Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Do stop for a moment and notice how large the type is. Yeah. It doesn't happen much, but you can actually read it from, from a distance. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to read you through th- 36 verses uh, here. I, I, it, we're in the story of Cornelius. Uh, this is a a major story in church history. That's why so much time is dedicated to it. You'll notice all of chapter 10, all of chapter 11 are about this one event uh, where this household of Romans uh, is powerfully saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit and uh, with Peter. And and it's a huge discussion on it. And I'll tell you why. This is God's making an absolute point that he wants no prejudice in the heart of his church. There will be no boundaries There will be nobody you exclude. There will be no place where your love flows and then hits a wall. And he's making a strong point. And this became, and I'll show you that, it became a touchstone for the church as time went on because they kept running into this thing with cultural prejudice. And it stopped the gospel. And because it's Peter, who better than Peter? Really, Peter or John were the key leaders uh, of the early church. So, it's Peter, in this case, who has this profound vision, who has this profound encounter, and we watch him discover the truth. It becomes a true revelation for him. We will, out of that, evaluate our own hearts and say, God, where, where, where are the boundaries? Where does the gospel flow to and then stop? Who do I not prefer to minister to? Where, where does that stop in us? And I'm not going to... Pick at yours. I'm not going to point them out. I'm going to share a couple of mine. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there. So I'm going to read you a bunch, and then I'm going to take you back through the story. So I'm just warning you. You're going to get a lot of Bible. Is that all right? Yes. You know, I have a, an agenda. Part of my agenda, yes, is to preach a message and apply it, but it's also to make sure that you and I really see the Scripture. I want you from now on to read the story of Cornelius and go, I so get this. I want you to understand it. I want it to come alive. Not just be one of those sections you read and go, well, whatever, you know, I see a little something here and a little something here, but I don't really know what's going on. It's important to me you know the Bible. It's important to me you understand the Bible so God can speak to you through his word. That's the whole point of that, amen? So Holy Spirit, come now. Open our ears. We want to hear your voice our eyes to see your word, our hearts to be soft and full of faith, to receive, Lord, revelation, not knowledge, just knowledge. We want revelation and understanding. I pray for the grace, Lord, to get out of the way and let your word powerfully speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. I'm going to read it, and uh, by the grace of God, not comment much. And uh, then I will take you back through it. Here we go. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continuously. About the ninth hour, that'll be three o'clock in the afternoon of the day, he clearly saw a vision, an angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms, alms being gifts to the poor, have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Tanning stinks. It's a very smelly practice. You're, all these carcasses, all this stuff. So this tanner's house is out by the ocean shore. So the sea breezes blow the smell away. That's why it's out there. 
When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the rooftop about the sixth hour, that'll be noon, to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But when they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, you'll notice he does not understand it. He's had this, and he's had, he's had an argument with God. God shows him all these, uh, all these unkosher animals. We'll describe what they are a little bit later. That's kind of fun. And, 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 and he says, butcher and eat. And Peter goes, not one of them will I do touch. I've never done this. God says it a second time. Butcher and eat. Peter says, no. Eat. No. Three times and then we move on. That's what happened. And, and then Peter, Peter, so Peter's just going, what was that about? He does not understand at all. I want you to see that. You can have a powerful vision and not understand it at all. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to, come to his house and to hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. On the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day... He entered Caesarea. It's 32 miles. And so they'll, they'll stay overnight somewhere. And um, they get in there about uh, 3 o'clock that afternoon. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. I'll tell you what that really says later. But Peter raised him up saying, stand up. I too am just a man. But, and as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew. I'll tell you what it really says later. To, to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. I want you to read that part out loud. God has shown me. God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or or unclean. Let's do it once more. God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. All right, I'll go on. That's why I came without raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask you, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius, now he, he re reviews the story, says at three in the afternoon, saw an angel, his garments were shining. He said, send to Joppa for Peter. I did it. Verse 33. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Re read that part with me and write down through verse 35. I most certainly understand now. That God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him 
and does what is right is welcome to him. And then I'll go to one more verse. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That's a mess as a translation. I'll tell you what it means later on. All right, now, I'm taking you back two weeks in your daily Bible study, and I'm going to read you right through it. I'll narrate some of it, but I want you to hear the story again. Is that all right? I want you to understand this story. Here we go. While Peter was, was ministering in Joppa, an angel of the Lord appeared to a Roman soldier in a nearby city. What he told that soldier set in motion a series of events which would become a major turning point in church history. His name was Cornelius. He was a centurion. That means an officer in charge of a hundred men out of a company of soldiers called the Italian cohort. These were security troops assigned to protect the representative of the Roman government in Caesarea. At that moment in time, the King Herod Agrippa was the official representative. So this is the bodyguard basically for Herod Agrippa who will try to kill Peter in a little while. He's a vicious man. He is the one who kills James. He's a, he's a, and he's the Roman representative. He is the, he's a, he's a, uh, well, he's the son of Herod. So he's, he's, he's a, an Edomite, basically, mixed with, with Ju- some Jewish blood. He, he's not, not loved. He's a vicious man. And he's the one in residence there in Caesarea. And this is his bodyguard. You got to just keep that in perspective. All right. Luke says Cornelius showed, was devout meaning he zealously observed the law of Moses, though he hadn't become a Jew, and God-fearing. He was conscious that God saw every part of his life, and he believed he'd be held accountable for his sin and rewarded for his obedience. So he's living in real consciousness of the presence of God. He was not alone in these qualities. Members of his household shared his faith. He did many acts of kindness and gave gifts to the poor, and he was a man who prayed continually, asking God to help him in everything he did. Around three in the afternoon, he saw a vision. It was so vivid, it seemed he was seeing it with his physical eyes. An angel entered the room, came up to him, and said, Cornelius. For a moment, he was so terrified, he could only stare at the angel. And then finally, he asked, what is it, Lord? In effect, the angel said, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have risen up before God like the smoke of the memorial portion of a grain offering when it's placed on the altar of sacrifice. That's, what it's, that's the word that's used. Not just God remembered your stuff. He says, when you've done these things, your prayers and your, your heartfelt gifts have risen up before God. Now picture this. He's talking to a Roman. Has, have risen up before God as though you had given a grain offering in the temple uh, uh, in Jerusalem. In other words, God receives your offering, your worship, fully. Mr. Roman, your worship, your heartfelt worship, you're walking in the light you know. You're walking sincerely with the true God, and God loves you. And he receives your worship just as though you were a Jew offering on the tabernacle the prescribed offerings. You see that? Isn't that powerful? All right. They are a soothing aroma to the Lord. By using this imagery, he was telling Cornelius that God considered his prayers and giving to be sincere acts of worship which pleased him. The angel was not implying Cornelius had earned God's favor, but with these words he assured him that God received his obedience as though he were a Jew who had gone into the temple to offer heartfelt worship. It appears that while he was stationed in Israel, Cornelius recognized that the God of the Bible is the true God. In being true to this revelation, he had forsaken the gods of Rome. This was a remarkably humble step, given the fact that most Jews hated the soldiers of the occupying army. Yet he moved boldly toward this truth, so now God would give him more truth. He moved in the light he had, and God would give him more. You see that? The angel told Cornelius a man named Peter was staying in Joppa, and he sent men to locate him and ask him to come back to Caesarea. Peter had a message for him. Peter was staying as a guest in a home of a man named Simon. Uh, I mentioned this about the unpleasant odors, verse 7 and 8 there. As soon as the angel went away, Cornelius summoned two of his household servants and a trusted soldier who shared his faith. He knew the soldier well because the man was assigned to him as an aide. That's the term that's used. So this is a personal aid, a military aid. He's, he's an officer. This is his aid who is also a deeply uh, faithful man. 
So he says to the soldier, he takes two servants and says, I want you to go. And then he sends a soldier with them to defend everybody. All right. He gave them orders and sent them to Joppa. I said it's, it's 32 miles there. They reached, they reached Joppa the next day, just probably about one o'clock in the afternoon. Because while Peter's up there on the roof getting hungry, they're getting, coming toward town. They're moving, Paul, I mean, Luke uses the word, they're coming toward town. Noon is a prayer time for observant Jews. Apparently, someone was cooking lunch down below, and the smell of the food drifted upward and surrounded Peter because Luke says he became starved, not just hungry, he was famished, and was longing not to eat, but to taste. That's the word. So he's up there praying, and this smell is coming up. Oh, and he, he says, give me some of that. I mean, I want some of that. And he hollers down and says, can I make another portion, please? While waiting for them to prepare the food, he was suddenly overwhelmed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a vision began to unfold in front of him. Heaven opened up, meaning the sky must have appeared to pull back to allow the brilliant light of heaven to shine through. Now picture this in your mind as I describe it. The sky opens up, parts away, and this brilliant light shines through. He's seeing this. And then a huge cloth sheet came down through this opening, made of fine white linen, which was lowered down by its four corners until it rested on the earth, right, right in front of him. And when it reached the ground, it flattened out, and Peter was able to see what was in it. It contained a great variety of creatures which were considered to be unclean by the law of Moses. Luke says it was filled with representatives from all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Leviticus chapter 11 probably gives us an itemized list of the unclean creatures Peter saw. Animals, fish, birds, rodents, lizards, insects, and I love this phrase, whatever crawls on its belly and has many feet. Don't you love eating stuff with many feet? So you know we got a centipede there, and we must have... I mean, who knows what's on this sheet? Um, and, and the voice comes to him, Peter, butcher is the word, butcher and eat. And he's hungry. So when Peter heard a voice command him, rise up, Peter, butcher and eat, he responded with shock and revulsion. What he says is, not even one. I'm not touching one of those things, Lord, because at no time have I ever eaten from all those things that are, un are common and unclean. And the voice spoke a second time. What God made clean, you do not make common. Three times this dialogue between God and Peter took place, and then the sheet full of animals was taken up into heaven. After the vision passed, this is important, Peter remained on the roof, on all, reflecting on all he had just seen, trying to understand what it meant. While he was still in this condition, the messengers from Caesarea arrived. They asked for direction to Simon's house in Joppa and now stood on his porch calling to those inside, asking if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Peter didn't hear them. And it's probably ocean waves as well and roar going on. Peter didn't hear them. Uh, but the Holy Spirit interrupted his thoughts, telling him, two men are searching for you. That's what the Greek actually says. So it's two messengers with the Roman soldier behind them. Stand up, go downstairs and go with them. Don't hesitate, even though they are Gentiles and one's a Roman soldier, because I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, behold, now look, look carefully at this. I'm the one you seek. What charge has been made against me which brought you here? That's the word. He says, so what are the charges? Well, what are you You're looking at a Roman soldier and, and a two Romans, you know, and their togas and the whole thing. And he's saying... What have I done? I didn't do it. He's, he's been told to go with them. He's been told nothing else. Go with them. He's like, oh boy. What charges are brought against me? In this statement, Luke uses a word. It implies the Romans, that Peter saw the Roman soldier. He assumed he was being summoned or possibly arrested. The messengers quickly assured him they were bringing an invitation, not an arrest warrant. They had been sent on a mission by a very godly man, Cornelius, a centurion who observes the Jewish law, etc., all of those things. They explained Cornelius sent them because he had received a revelation from God. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house 
to hear a statement from you. Just stopping there for a second. Don't you love the way Peter functions? Compare him to, to Saul again, Paul. Saul's approach is come into a town, head to the synagogue, preach boldly, argue scripture, win your argument, get about two of them converted, and then run for your life. Remember that? That's Paul's approach. Peter is functioning by this, these divine appointments. This kind, I mean, look at this setup. Angels talking to this Roman. Go get Peter. They send the messengers. Peter's on the roof. God says there's guys down below. Shows him this vision. Look at the, look at the divine process that Peter's walking in, in the way it was. You, you'll see how that works out for him, too. Uh, Peter was... Uh, Standing in the doorway, he invited these guys to come in. He says, come on into the house. And Peter, it specifically says, Peter, Peter paid for their food and things. Uh, there's a word there. This tanner is a poor man. Uh, he's, he's, he's a Christian. He, he loves Peter. He's housing him. But he can't afford three men for dinner. Have you been places where people can't afford three, three more mouths for dinner? But they would if they could. Or they'll give you their best and they won't eat. Uh, I, I've been in numerous places like that. And Peter covers them uh, and provides for them. The next morning, they began their journey to Caesarea, but the church was concerned for his safety and sent six men to accompany him. They arrived in Caesarea about three o'clock the next day. Cornelius, along with a large gathering of relatives and close friends, was waiting expectantly. When Peter met Cornelius face to face, and that's the word, Cornelius prostrated himself on the ground in front of Peter. He didn't worship Peter. This is really, the word is translated worship a lot, but it means flat on your belly. And in, in, in the ancient Near East, one of the signs of submission and, and great you know, hum, humility is you go flat down in front of somebody. You're not worshiping them, but you're blah, flat belly down, and you're showing them this great reverence, this, this great uh, submission. That's what Cornelius did. Peter's, Peter walks in, and Cornelius comes up and just goes belly down right in front of him. It's awkward. For a Roman centurion, pro- pardon me, probably nothing in this story proves the sincerity of Cornelius' vision more than this amazing act. For a Roman centurion to prostrate himself before a Jew with family and friends nearby would have been absolutely unthinkable. Unless, of course, an angel really did instruct him to send for Peter and said Peter would tell him and his loved ones how to have eternal life. In that case, Cornelius' zeal makes perfect sense. And I mentioned to you the word worship and what it really means. Still, what, verse 26, what Cornelius did looked too much like worship for Peter. So he stooped down and helped him get back on his feet. Now picture this. He's saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. Now then to put any, uh, to rest any thought that he thought of himself as superior to Cornelius, Peter apparently took him by the arm and the two men walked into the meeting room side by side as friends. It doesn't say they talked together. It has a strange word. Again, Luke's vocabulary is just off the planet. He's so many words. This is the toughest Greek I've ever read in this section on Cornelius. I don't know why. So many words, only use in the Bible. Two uses in the entire Bible. It's, it's just woo. But, it, but what he did is, is, is here's Cornelius, belly down. Peter can't stand it. He, he reaches down and, and grabs him and he says, come on up. Come on up here. Come on up here. And then he apparently like, takes him by the arm, puts his arm around him, and he says, come on. And the two of them go on in to this meeting room. And what's in there? What's in this room? It's packed. Absolutely packed with family and and friends who have just been waiting with bated breath for Peter to arrive. Can't you picture this? Like, what what a moment. Peter discovered there a large group waiting to hear him speak. And as he stood in front of this gathering, he was very conscious of the fact that this was an awkward situation given the cultural boundaries between Jews and Romans. And he began by explaining why he, a Jew, had been so willing to enter a Gentile's home. Let me, let me tell you something. Jews, by that point in time, had a, a strong sense of, 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 that they should never 
not only enter a Gentile's home, they shouldn't even get physically close to a Gentile. Why? Well, those Gentiles, had, they didn't keep kosher. They, didn't, they touched stuff. They touched the dead. You never knew where a Gentile had been. <laughs> and so you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't shake hands, or if you did, you took that hand and washed it. Uh, if, 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 you were, if a Gentile came into your home, you kept your eye on them the entire time, and if they, you left the room and at any point in time didn't watch them, you had to clean the entire room. Everything in the room had to be cleaned. Who knew what that Gentile touched? So this kind of culture was, was what he was raised in as a, as a boy. So this to him is his conscience. This is what he thinks is right. It isn't biblical in that sense. It's been added by the rabbinical studies all of those years. But it's deep in him. It's deep in him. So he's, he had to violate his conscience to walk into this house. He shouldn't be here as a good Jew. So he said, you're, you're familiar with the fact that we Jews have customs. It does not say unlawful, and it, they shouldn't use that word because it implies that it's somewhere in the Bible. It's not. He says, we Jews have customs that forbid us to associate with or even physically get close to a foreigner. And yet God showed me that I am not to call any man common." meaning unwelcome among God's people, or unclean, unwelcome in God's presence. Indeed, that's why I came without asking questions or raising objections when I was summoned. And it's because I didn't ask these questions, I need to ask you now, for what reason have you summoned me? So here in front of everybody, he asked that question. Cornelius answers, tells his story again, and down to verse, uh, the end of that section. So now we are all here present before God to hear everything the Lord commanded you to tell us. And opening his mouth, meaning stepping out into anointed speech, Peter said, I now truly understand that God is completely just. I want you to read the rest of this with me, would you, out loud? I now truly understand that God is completely just. He does not distinguish between people based on their outward circumstances, such as nationality, physical appearance, wealth, or social standing. But in every nation, anyone who has genuine faith in the true God and who sincerely tries to obey him is accepted by him. This is the message he was trying to tell our nation through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us he came to bring peace between Jew and Gentile and said he is Lord over all the peoples of the earth not just Israel. That's in the text. I didn't make that up. I mean, I, I made the part up about the uh, nationality, physical appearance. I mean, that's what it means, and I put it in so, you, so we had a feel of it. But Peter, actually, that, there's a verse there that, that's so badly translated, and even when you look at the scholars, they all go, well, it looks like he continues to say it, but they don't like what it says, apparently, or if follow it. I don't, I don't know why it's such a muddle. Peter says this. He says, now I at last see. And notice where he is. Finally, as I stand here in this living room, looking at your faces, feeling the love of God, I get it. I get it. He loves you. He's not partial. In every nation on earth, the people who are hungry for him, he loves them. He's the, this, and then he says, that's what Jesus was trying to teach us. He was trying to tell us this. I, I remember all that stuff, but I didn't get it. He, he said that he would reach the Gentiles, and he said that he was the Lord over all the earth. Now I get it. While praying on a rooftop, in Joppa, Peter received an amazing vision. God spoke to him three times in that vision, but afterward he had no idea what he'd been tell, trying to tell him. It remained a puzzling mystery until the moment he stepped into the home of a Roman soldier. As he stood there looking at their faces and feeling God's presence in the room, he instantly understood. In fact, he finally understood something Jesus tried to teach him years earlier. 
So this was what he meant when he kept preaching about reaching Gentiles. He tried to understand, but it just never made sense before. Now at last he could see it, and it was so clear he marveled he hadn't seen it before. Two days earlier, when the messengers arrived at the gate, he knew God wanted him to trust these strangers and go with them. So he left Joppa and came to Caesarea. And now here he was, only a short distance away from Herod Agrippa's palace, in the living room of one of the officers of his palace guard. The sensation he felt at that moment was not unlike the time he stepped out of the boat and walked on water. It was both frightening and exhilarating at the same time. His life could be at risk, and he had to violate his conscience even to be there. After all, Jews weren't supposed to be in Gentile homes. But here he was, and amazingly, Jesus was here too. And finally, he understood why. The point I see here, and I'm going to make it strongly, Peter didn't understand the vision till he obeyed the instruction. Do you follow this? You can be given prophetic word. You can read things in the scripture and understand them at a level in your brain. But you don't really get it. You understand it, but you don't believe it. Something happens to us. When God places us, when we walk into obedience and we get out of those painful, scary spots, we get in those moments and, and we suddenly are in it and we see it and we feel it and we can sense God's power in it, that we're changed. Now you have a man who believes this. Before you had a man who just had heard it. Had Jesus told them to go to the Gentiles? Had Jesus, had Jesus pronounced all foods clean? Yeah, but it, didn't, but it didn't affect Peter. He's gone right back to his cultural prejudice. And so has everybody else in the church. Now, that's what they did. We don't do that, right? You see, there's something in this. God has, God has to stretch our hearts. And he does it, and it can be scary and painful. Where he takes you, and he says, now you're going to love somebody. And you go, oh, not them. Anybody but them, come on. And he puts you in the middle, and, and, in, and in that situation, you feel his love. Your heart's changed. And all of a sudden, your heart is bigger. Your love is broader. You're now capable of not just knowing you should love everybody, but you feel the love. You're different. Peter didn't understand God's revelation until he obeyed God's instruction. Would you say that? Let's do that once more. Peter didn't understand God's revelation until he obeyed God's instruction. Nor do we. Seeing or hearing a truth isn't the same as understanding it. Even when God speaks a truth directly to us, we can't comprehend it. His thoughts are too great for us. But if we obey what he's told us to do, we find his will leads us to a place where we experience truth, where we actually watch it in action. And in that environment, he opens our eyes to see as he sees and softens our hearts to feel what he feels. And finally, we understand. And then, like Peter, once we've truly seen it, we don't know how we ever missed it. Remember what James says? If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, notice that? He's like a man who looks in his natural face in a mirror and for once he's looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he was. There must be obedience mixed with hearing. You can't just have a revelation even if it's a powerful vision. And if you don't act on it, you will forget it. It will have no final impact on you personally. Peter heard many times, but it didn't change him. Now he's changed. I'll just give you an example. Look at this. Matthew 10, 1 there. Jesus, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. All right, so he sends them out. Uh, and then this is a report about the 70, but it's the same thing. In Luke 10, 17, it says, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Did you follow this? Okay, so Jesus says, now go 
I'm giving you authority over demons. And out they go. And then they come back and they go, you're not going to believe this. Demons are subject to us. Jesus is saying, right. That's what I was saying. No, it's true. Right. That's what I was trying to, you see it? He can tell you you have authority, but until you've been out there casting out a few, you don't believe it. It's in the doing. It's in the obedience. The word can be spoken to you, but until you do it, you don't get it. So when you, now, this group over here comes back and go, man, we got authority. This group over here had heard they had authority, but it wasn't here yet. What, when, when he commissioned, commissioned them, they heard the truth, but when they returned, they believed the truth. In front of Peter's eyes, Jesus had ministered to Gentiles, entered their homes, and touched lepers. That, I'm talking back during the ministry years while P, Peter was his disciple walking around with him. He watched Jesus do all of that stuff. He had constantly been, that is, Jesus had constantly been in trouble for violating Jewish ceremonial laws. Never the moral laws. Because he said ministering God's love to to sick, needy people was more important. In fact, in one event, he even pronounced all foods clean. Do you remember this? He said, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And it was Peter himself who asked him to explain that parable. (laughs) Remember? So, So Jesus says this. Peter goes, what do you mean? And Jesus answers, and then he says, and then it says, and by this Jesus pronounced all foods clean. Mm-hmm. Who, who asked him the question? And who just argued three times with God and says, there's no way I'm eating that stuff. It's garbage. He heard, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't believe. Heard, but he didn't believe. See it? When presented with a vision of unclean food, three times he defiantly refused to obey God's command to eat. He had heard the truth, but he hadn't understood it. What Peter saw. As he stood in Cornelius' home, Peter finally believed that though God had made a covenant with the people of Israel, he is still the God of all the peoples of the earth. That even though a person does not have a great deal of revelation, if they love the true God and sincerely try to obey him, he receives their worship and listens to their prayers. Do you believe that? Listen to me. Uh, we, we get so narrow. We get so narrow in our thinking. I've, I've, been in, I've been in situations where within one denomination, one synod is not at all sure the other synod saved. I'm not joking. I've watched situations in weddings where the pastor of one synod will not stand on the platform while the pastor of another synod's on the, on the platform. He has to come down and be off it because you can't be around that kind of guy. I, I mean, you, we get so narrow. And yet God, by the Holy Spirit, is the God of all the earth. And he is watching for people who will love him and walk with him. Not just any God. I'm not talking about religious sincerity. I'm talking about the true God. Are there people all over the planet who are seeking the truth and want to know the true God? I've traveled enough and some of you have too. I know the answer. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. This is a Roman soldier. And he is hungry to know the truth. And he has done what he knows. He has given, he's been generous with the poor, not just to earn something. The man's changed. It says he's a man who fears God. It means he lives in a constant awareness of God's presence. He's not just religious. He's got living faith. The guy's alive. And he's, so he's serving the poor and he's, he's worshiping God the best he knows. And he prays all the time, asking God for help. That's the kind of prayer word it's used. He asks him for help. And God says to him, before this, before, any, before this household event, he says, I love your worship. Rises up to me like a sweet aroma. But we got to keep that in mind, don't we? He receives their worship and listens to their prayers and that God will go to great lengths to teach people about himself. 
he now saw at a deeper level that God is a God who wants to save and is looking all over the earth for people willing to walk in faith with him. That's how Abraham came to him in the first place. Do you recall that? Abraham was not a Christian. Somebody ought to laugh. There was a, there's a joke in there. He was not a Christian. He wasn't a Jew. Abraham grew up in a house full of moon worshipers in Ur of the Chaldees. It says so. I'm not extrapolating. I'm not making it up. So here's this kid that grows up in this pagan house in Ur of the Chaldees of all places. And yet he's willing to obey God when he says, leave your home. I got to get you out of here. And leave your family. They're a mess. And you come with me. I got to teach you about myself. And he does it. Took him a while, but he did it. Come on. He did it. And then God shows him more and more and more of himself, didn't he? By the time you're done, by the time he's done with Abraham, man, he's, Abraham's whole gospel's there. Because the man loved God and sought him and walked in faith with him. That's how the, that's how the whole thing with the, the family of, of Abraham began. Because of this couple who did this. Now he was drawing to himself a household of spiritually hungry Romans. Right in front of Peter's eyes in that moment. Peter had to let go of his sense of cultural separation and superiority that had been taught to him since he was born. Why did God choose Peter? Though Jesus had clearly commanded his disciples to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, their cultural prejudices, and I mean a whole bunch, were so strong, they simply didn't obey him. They were caught in a dilemma. He said, do one thing, but the law of Moses seemed, let me underscore the word, seemed to say another. And if this spiritual obstacle to evangelism was going to be removed, it would have to be Peter or possibly John who would do it. Who has, the, who has the authority? Who has the respect? This was a cultural wall that had to be broken down in the Jewish church, but it first had to be broken down in Peter. Here's a glimpse ahead. Now, let me show you what happens as a result of this. I won't tell you all the details because we'll go on with the story of Cornelius later, but this is such a beautiful moment. This household, boy, do they get saved. Let me just say that. Woo-ha. I mean, the whole bunch. Now, you would think when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, I mean, how are the leaders of the Jerusalem church going to say, they're all going to go, hallelujah, a household of Romans. Come on, huh? Give me five. You know, give me ten. That's how they responded. Let's see it. They're in chapter 11, verse 1. So he comes, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of the Lord. They were thrilled. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, now here's how they said it. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence. Peter goes, now, Calm down. Let me tell you, it's not my fault. <laughs> it is not my fault. Back off. It's God's fault. Let me tell you what happened. And he marches him through. You see that? That's what's going on. They are not at all pleased. Picture this. Picture this. Jesus said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Constantly brought in the passages that talked about the, 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 the Gentiles. Other sheep have I also not of this fold. He just went on and on and on. And then, when a household of Romans dares to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, all they can think of is, what are you doing with a bunch of dirty Romans? Our cultural prejudices, until God divinely removes them, no matter what our head says or what our ears have heard, stay there. The walls stay there until God divinely melts them. You don't tear them down. He melts it. Where did I go? Okay. Now, I want to show you another example. This is years later. Look at chapter 15. Paul, you know what Paul has done. He's just been all over the place reaching Gentiles. In this causes, again, a furor 
all of these Gentiles. What are we doing here? Uh, And so they have a council at Jerusalem to settle the matter. Verse 6. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter, and there had been much debate. <laughs> and, and who stood up now? Peter. See that? God has prepared Peter. You're looking at the moment. That's why there's so much given to this. God's prepared Peter. Peter stood up. And he said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, so this, was a, this is a long time later, years later, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about this moment with Cornelius. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And that is what will happen in that living room. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Sounds like Jesus now, doesn't he? Notice notice the commitment in him? That's not coming from his head. This is a man who now gets it. This is a man who knows the love of God. Who's seen the power of God. Knows how deeply he loves the Gentiles. That there's no distinction at all. He's seen it. It's now real to him. And so in this critical moment, he stands up and tells them what for. He says, come on. You remember what happened. And who else? This is Peter. He stands up and says, you know that through me, you know what happened. What are we doing here having this conversation? Aren't we grateful for him? He did waver. I have to admit that. Later on, he went, up to, he went up to Antioch, and there was so much Jewish, the Jewish Messianic Jew pressure to, to separate from the Gentiles that at one point he backed off, and, and Paul took him on. Now, don't you picture Peter's big? Yeah, yeah I do. I, always, I think he was. I, I, I suspect he was. He's slow, and he's large, and he's a fisherman. And, and, and so here's great big old Peter, and, and you don't picture Paul that way. Paul is, is, is little and bald, and uh, that's especially good for anointings. And, and so picture this. It, it, here's Peter up, and we're up at Antioch, and we've got like 25, 30,000 uh, Gentiles in the church. I mean, this is a massive growing church. It was a huge event. And, uh, and, and up come these religious folk from Jerusalem, and then they start scolding everybody that they can't, they can't just come into Christianity like this. They've got to get circumcised and start practicing the Jewish laws. And, and, and you, you shouldn't be eating together. They're all dirty germ, Gentiles. And, and Peter even backs off. And here's little Paul. He, he says this. He says, and I confronted him publicly. <laughs> and he says, if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile, what are you doing making them? The same line goes at. I just would love to have seen... I don't know if I'd love to see it. Yes, I would. That argument, wouldn't you? And Peter backs off because he knows the truth. It's deep in him. He's just, he just got intimidated by this bunch. Obedience before understanding. God isn't trying to make us smart. He's trying to make us wise. He doesn't show us revelations to satisfy our curiosity. He leads us into situations that conform us into his image. Do you follow that? When you have people who spend their time trying to figure out last day's dates or, and, and stuff like that, they're trying to be smart. It's about the mind. It's about curiosity. It's about sort of a, 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 a mental interest. It's not the Lord. What does the Lord do? What kind of lessons does he teach you? He takes you and changes your heart. He takes you deeper in the basics. He doesn't just want you to think about love. He wants you to love. He doesn't want you to be, think about kindness. He wants you to be kind. So he puts us in transformative experiences. That's how he teaches us. He makes, put, leads us into situations that conform us into his image. And more than anything else, he wants us to love like he loves. That's the highest. He's preparing sons and daughters who carry his heart to the whole world. 
He wants us to think like he thinks, to do what he would do, to feel what he feels. So he leads us into very difficult places where we need him desperately and discover his heart. I'm telling you, the road to transformation is into painful, difficult places. Things that stretch you. Things that push you out of your comfort zone. And if I refuse to go, I won't change. When Peter stood there, and here's three men, two of them, are, one of them a Roman soldier, all of them Romans, standing at the gate saying, we're looking for Peter, Simon Peter. Peter stands at the doorway of this house and all he's thinking of is, oh man, I'm getting arrested. But God had said, go with them. So he says, come on in. He's obeying, but it's scary. And where is he going to end up? Right downtown Caesarea. Right down by Herod Agrippa's palace. Most vicious man in, 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 the, in, the, in the country right now. With his palace guard. And if he'd said no, he wouldn't have learned. He'd have never changed. God will put you. I want, I want you to see just a, a, it's a powerful principle. It's an ancient principle. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'll just take a minute there. But you, you need to see this is how God works with you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I'll start at verse 2. I'll go down to verse 5. In Deuteronomy, this is, is, is uh, Moses in his last years. He's, he's about to die, really, and he's rehearsing to this young generation the lessons that they had learned in the wilderness so they wouldn't forget them as they go into the new land. And he says, you shall remember, verse 2, all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God will have taken you into the wilderness to test you. He humbled you and let you be hungry. Let me stop there. God, he's, Moses is saying God deliberately led you to places where there wasn't enough food. Have you ever followed God and you, you did everything you knew? You really deeply believed that he was leading you. And you got yourself in a real pickle. And you thought, I must have missed him. Because this, this is hard, man. I, I will tell you personally, every time I've obeyed him, there's this what have I done moment. That comes along somewhere after I arrive and find out how tough it is. Is anybody, are you there? You have too, haven't you? So, so often we will, start, we will start criticizing ourselves, second-guessing our, ourselves, doubting that God ever spoke to us in the first place because, boy, this is a lot harder than I ever thought it was going to be. If this was God, I mean, haven't you heard? If it's God, everything works smoothly. That's how you know it's God. You get there and everything's just perfect. I guess there are a few of those events, just he does that for fun. But by and large, your walk with him is he will lead you to things and you go, this, there's no food here. There's no water here. What are we doing? Moses is telling them he did that to you on purpose. Why? Look. He, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, that he might put you in a position where you were desperate, and in your desperation you would call on him, and he would speak a miracle. And he did. He gave you bread out of heaven. So why does he lead you where there's no water? So he can give you water. But he wants you to need him. He wants you to relate to him. He wants you to walk with him daily. He's not, he, 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 elsewhere it'll say, I didn't put you in, in, by the Nile River where there's a constant easy supply of water and all you have to do is do this, pump it with your foot, the treadmill thing, when you want to water. He said, I'm going to put you in a land where you need rain. And when you walk with me, you'll get it. And when you don't, you won't. 
How many know farmers who need rain? Boy, that is a tough life, huh? You're living constantly on the edge of a, oh God, we need rain. What's he doing? Forcing you to need him. Forcing you to walk with him. Forcing you to trust him. This is his ways, people. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Thank heavens we're in the new. Everything's easy now. (laughs) Hey, the book of Hebrews, and you don't get any better than Hebrews. It says, God chastens every son that comes to him, every child that comes to him. He chastens, and he's quoting, he's referring to this. Prophetic revelation prepares the heart to understand what the eyes are about to see. And what the heart is about to feel. But if I refuse to obey, I will never really understand what he has shown me. Peter isn't the only one with cultural prejudices. I have them too. And so do you. Prejudice in all of its form is part of our fallen human nature. All of us tend to reach out to people like ourselves. But God wants to remove our prejudices and teach us to love our, quote, enemies. And just like Peter, if we'll obey him, he'll put us right in the middle of a group of such people. And then let us feel his great love for them. And then we too will say, you can read this with me if you will. Now I truly understand that God is completely just. He does not distinguish between people based on their outward circumstances such as nationality, physical appearance, wealth, or social standing. But in every nation, anyone who has genuine faith in the true God and sincerely tries to obey him is accepted by him. Now, I have two... I'm going to illustrate from my own life. And while I do it, I want you to think about yours. I picked these fairly carefully. They're embarrassing, aren't they? I mean, any kind of... You, you look at it and you realize how, how silly it is. But here we go. I admit to you that I had... I had a bias against, against Holland, the Netherlands. Because it was a, it was the, a center place for, the, for Calvinism. The, the most virulent form of Calvinism was, was done there. And um, now I grant you, I've met some wonderful Dutch people, but I've also met some really virulent Calvinists on it and um, had some painful experiences. Um, I won't go into them, but over this whole kind of thing. So I had this kind of thing. I didn't say anything. Um, I wasn't constantly seething, but it just wasn't my favorite group and figured I'd never in the world go there. Somebody else could do that. And then, um, actually a couple of years ago, I had the, 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 the head of the uh, Foursquare Church, it's called Raphael Ministries in, in uh, Holland, asked me if I'd come to Holland. And my first answer was, no, I'm not looking to travel anywhere, uh, thanks, you know. And then I stopped a minute and I said, what did you want me to talk about? And he said, the Holy Spirit. Mm. How do you say, I know I won't tell you about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so I said, well, I can't come this year. It's a sabbatical year. The Lord spoke to me. Can't come this year. Sorry. And he said, we'll wait. <laughs> okay. All right. So then I, it was last fall this happened. And I, I had, uh, was going to South Africa. And I just, I just, all right. And I linked after South Africa. I would go to Holland. I had no idea what to expect. Well, what, do, what do you think? I, I get there, and I'm thinking, oh boy, who knows what, you know, all these Calvinists. <laughs> and uh, I get to, this, to the gathering, and it's, it's packed with the sweetest, hungriest, most lovely people you ever saw in your life. <laughs> and I'm thinking... Oh, boy. And as I spoke to them, the anointing is so strong in the room. And the Lord, they are so hungry and tender. And I just, and I, and, the, and I stood there at one point, and he said to me, 
so how do you like my people now? And I said, I love them. He said, I do too. He was just saying, do you see how, how stupid it is, Stephen, with your prejudices? Do you see how your little barriers, how stupid they are? The head of, I just, at convention, you know, I get together with, with the, 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 the fellow who's the president of the, and we, uh, I, I had a divine appointment. We just walking by this little lake there and, and spent, spent um, hour or hour or two together. I love that man like he's like, and I, tr- I, I think of him now as, as, a, as a personal friend. What, he and his wife, what a, I just, I adore them. But I had a bias. I had a prejudice. I had a fear. I was never interested in going there. I'll be honest with you. Now, he says to me, anytime you'll come back, we sure want you. I said, well, I, I want to come, so we'll see what we can do. Because now I fall in love with the Netherlands. Isn't that strange? No, it's not strange. It's normal. He, now, I'm sure I got, I, got, I got more, and I'll tell you another one, and then I'm done. But God was taking something. That didn't happen to me till I got there, till I obeyed. Till in the middle of this, I, I could see and feel as God saw and felt. You understand? You can't just say, well, I'm going to, I love all peoples. No, you don't. <laughs> you should, and you know what to say, but no, you don't. Come on. You got your own groups. I mean, this stuff comes down to young and old. You know, cougars and huskies. I mean, you can... <laughs> That's a bitter one right there, yeah. God, we'll have a deliverance session. Here's one more, and I'm, I'm done. Um, I, as I, when I grew up, we would drive from California to Minnesota. In summers. My mother had a family in Minnesota, and we'd go back and be with them. And uh, we often drove through um, Montana. We'd go through this way. And, and uh, Butte, Montana, we'd travel through. And... and, and and stayed in that town at least a couple of times. Uh, you know, and, and it's a rough town. It's a mining town. Uh, a lot of bars and saloons and, and, and you know what. And, and it had been there and all that. And I really didn't like Butte, Montana. So we, we made real determination. You know, I, I kind of grew up with this attitude is you, you sure don't stop in Butte. <laughs> and then... We go to the, you know, back, you know, our summer missions and we go help. And we say, went to the district and we said, we're looking for a, for a, for a city. We're looking for a place we can help the church uh, with a summer mission. And they said, Butte, Montana. <laughs> and I said, no, what else you got? <laughs> and my response, but, but I'll tell you, I had already learned this le- a lesson. And it comes out of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and I remember being taught out of that. God loves to violate our prejudice. So that if you are, if there's somebody or some, some people or some kind of people that you don't like, God will go out of his way to put you there. Not to be cruel, but to get that nasty thing out of your heart. So I have learned when I don't like it, it's probably a call of God. I'm, I'm serious. So when they said Butte, Montana, I went, oh, how did you know? How did you know? You could pick any other city. And then say, okay, we'll go. And I knew I was taking my medicine. All right, we're going to go. So we were there two weeks. Fell in love with Butte, Montana. Did. Wrote down an old 1928 church. Man, that was a fabulous mission. It's, that church is still going uh, that, that you guys invested in. Um, but here's the funny story. At the very end, you know, we're kind of done, and we all went to Lewis and Clark Caverns to just for, a, for a, 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 a fun time together at the end. And we're down there somewhere in the belly of these caverns, you know, and they turn the lights out. You know how they do that? You know, it's dark, and boys are dark. You do not want to go to hell, I'll tell you. <laughs> it, it, it is pitch black, and we're sitting down there in this darkness. And then, and then, the, and then the, he puts the light on, and he says, so where are all your folks from? He said, you know, where are you from? And... And one of our groups said, Butte, Montana. And then he made this rude remark about Butte, Montana, which I shall not repeat. And the minute he said it, 
our entire group went, boo! <laughs> and I'm writing, boo! <laughs> you don't talk about our peeps that way. These are our people, come on. And, and I felt this anger inside, right? I'm serious. Are we all, you don't talk about our town like that. Who do you think you are? I says, we're, we're from Butte. I still to this day have a Copper Kings baseball hat. It's my town. It is. I love that town. I wouldn't think of going anywhere near that place and not going there. Now. But before, I avoided it. Because I had a prejudice, a cultural prejudice, buried in my heart that I wouldn't speak, but it was there. That's what God roots out. How does he do it? He puts you in that and then lets you feel his love for them and lets you, lets you see how beautiful the people really are. They're not what you thought at all. They're wonderful. And you fall in love with them. You don't just go away going, yeah, I'm not prejudiced. You go away in love. I guarantee you, Peter's, you can see it. He's different now. Something got rooted out of his heart and will not come back. Because now he believes what God, the Lord Jesus, had been teaching him all along. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.